0: to this very first episode of what we hope will become a regular in your podcast rotation State of the Game. My name's Rod Murray, and together with my co-hosts i will bringing you what we hope will be a lively, different and hopefully important take on all things golf each and every fortnight. Now as this is a new show I guess we should start this week by first introducing my partners in crime and then perhaps We'll explain a little bit about what exactly State of the Game is hoping to achieve. Now, I'll start with the man whose blog is launching the whole thing, Jeff Shackelford. Jeff's an author of several books. He's had a hand in designing a few golf courses as well, but he's probably best known for his insightful and thought-provoking work at his blog, JeffShackelford.com, which he spent the last several years building into an overnight success. Jeff, welcome aboard.
1: Thank you, Rod. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, and good to have you here as well. Our next contributor hails from the other side of the Atlantic, and he's one of the dying breed in modern media who not only isn't afraid to tell it like it is, but seems to take great delight in doing so. From Scotland on Sunday, Golf Australia magazine, and Lord knows how many other publications, John Huggan. Great to have you along, John.
2: Nice to be here.
0: Yeah, and our final team member is one of Australia's most respected analysts and golf course architects. He's also a winner on both the European and Australasian tours. He forms one half of Ogilvy Clayton design, and he's a former Australian amateur champion. Mike Clayton, people don't make enough of that great moment in 1978, do they?
3: Well, I'm not sure about that, but... um. <laughs> It was significant. Before I won, there were five five players in 100 years of term pro, and after I won every single one of term pro. So that'll tell you how the game's changed in 30 years.
0: (laughs) It's one of the topics we'll be discussing. I mention that, of course, because the final of the Australian amateur this year will be played today. We'll come to all that shortly. Let's start with Jeff Shuggleford. Jeff. I want you to give the listeners a bit of a thumbnail sketch of what this State of the Game podcast is about. You had your little year-in-review piece on jeffshackelford.com a couple of weeks ago, and you mentioned in there that podcasting will probably be a little bit more prevalent on the site. Just give us a taste of what uh, what you're sort of hoping and what we're hoping to do with the podcast here.
1: Well, we've talked about this for some time and the need to, uh, to have a podcast where uh, we discuss issues in the game, things that maybe aren't being discussed elsewhere. This is probably a historic... Broadcast and that uh, all four of us are together on this one, but in general, we're we're not going to do that. We're going to probably have uh, just schedules permitting uh, one or two of us, and then hopefully some guests and some different people from the world of golf. So it's not just us uh, blabbing about uh, the game and our views, and uh, and then the also the idea is to have an international perspective. Uh, I think we're coming from this at uh, from from different continents, and I think that um, is something that often gets overlooked in a lot of the discussions about uh, what's going on in the game.
0: Yeah, indeed, because of course there are any number of issues that uh, that do confront the game, and uh you write about all, any and all of them on your blog over there. John huggin I wanted to come to you because uh, this is actually take two of this podcast. Don't tell the listeners, but there was an incident with the first one. All my fault. We didn't get the recording on tape. But I was intrigued when we spoke last time to listen to you talk about the chat, your yearly chat that you have with Peter Dawson from the Royal and Ancient. Um Give us a bit of an insight into some of the things and some of the feelings you got from that interview with Dawson because it wasn't all about what was said, was it? You got some feelings about some of the things that weren't said by Peter Dawson.
2: Well, it was it was slightly different uh, from this is an annual visit, as you say. To I go up into Mister Dawson's office and we we sit down and we argue for an hour over uh, just about everything and anything, uh, but mostly um, a big part of any discussion he and I have is the the distance the ball goes and the equipment and what this is doing to the game and how inept the R&A have been in their dealings with uh, that area of their responsibility. Uh, And usually, you know, he defends, obviously it's his job to defend uh, the R&A's role in all of this. Uh, And we get to the point where the question comes up, are you going to do something about the golf ball? It's going too far. Isn't it about time that something was done? And every year until now, he's, he's shot that, very suggestion down in flames very quickly. But this time it was slightly different. I think uh, we're actually, my feeling is that we're getting close to having the RNA and the USG actually do something about this issue. Since 2002, when they came out with their statement of principles or whatever it was called, uh, the average driving distance on the PGA Tour has gone up, on average, about one yard per year since then that seems to me to be significant and I think they're actually coming round to that idea believe it or not.
0: Clates this is something that we will talk about probably fairly regularly on the podcast here the the distance the ball goes and particularly amongst the professional levels but also the elite amateur levels I know you've been out at the Australian amateur this week watching some of the play you had some thoughts on what you saw out there and and the way the game has changed you talk about the game changing uh since you won the amateur in 1978 but what about just the way the game is played at that elite amateur and professional level?
3: Well, I watched the kids play the semi-final yesterday, and they were apart from being staggeringly good, I thought. I mean, it was a really high-quality match. Uh, It's amazing how far they hit the ball. We've all been to Woodlands, but it's difficult to imagine someone, you know, hitting a 60- or 70-yard pitch into that green, and we played it with a six iron. So it's clearly much easier to play off the tee. I mean, they all smash at miles. You know, I don't know that it really helps them in terms of developing their overall game because they don't ever have to keep the ball down or play much of a different shot because the ball stays out of the wind. So in a windy place like Australia or Britain, you, you can sort of fire the ball up high into the wind and it won't affect it so much. So you know, I think it. there's a lot to be said for young kids, learning to play, throw the lob wedge out, go, go and practice with wooden drivers, Um you know, learn to hit different shots that players of past generations were forced to hit because if they learn that, they will truly elevate themselves above the average because part of the problem with the game is there are so many... At the highest though, there are so many young kids who can do the same things because the equipment lets them do the same things. Whereas when we were kids, very few people could do what Seve could do or Norman could do or Tom Watson could do as a driver because you had to be tr- truly talented at golf to drive the ball long and straight. Now you don't.
0: Why is it such a problem, Mike? Is it simply because it's less interesting to watch as a spectator? We hear players talk about it. I mean, several of the top-line professional players uh, have been quite public about saying they think the ball goes too far. Uh, Brandel Chambly, I noticed on your site today, Shackelford, has come out and written a piece, and he's talked about, you know, time to bifurcate the rules, et cetera. Why is it such well, a problem?
1: And, and, and to, not to interrupt, but John's piece where Peter Dawson's talking about the treatment uh, that you have to give to these golf courses, and I'm sure that's what Mike's about to say, but... Yeah, you know, the notion that the governing bodies uh, change the golf courses for one week tournament is just—it's it's always been ridiculous to me, and and it, I think it's now more ridiculous to more people, which is nice.
0: But if you watch television coverage, Shaq, particularly from America, you you know you seem to hear and see—it seems to be what the fans want. They they crowd around Bubba Watson and Dustin Johnson. You know, I think Tiger Woods summed it up nicely a few years ago. He said, "You know, chicks dig the long ball.
1: They do." They do, but uh, it's just a number. I mean, they're going to dig it if they're hitting it uh, 265 or 365. There's still going to be an interest in a long drive. But uh, as Mike can tell you as an architect, uh, there's a huge difference in terms of cost and safety and all these elements uh, between that drive that goes 270 and 370.
0: Hmm. Mike, we 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 did interrupt you there, mate. Well, why is it a bad thing? Why is it a bad thing that the pros hit the ball so far and the and the top level and even some of the the mid level amateurs these days can hit the ball miles, can't they?
3: Well, the most important thing the game has much more important than the players because the players come and go. Tiger will come and go. Nicholas came and went. Probably Jones came and went. Um, the golf courses they're the heart and soul of the game, and you've got to protect them and ha- and have them play somewhat close to the way the greatest architects who ever worked wanted them to play. So you know. If the intent of Colton, McKenzie and Thomas and Tillinghurst is completely lost, what's the point of it? You know, you know there is no point in a game when the holes don't play the way they should or the way they were designed. And you know, when, when you talk about you know, Chicks digging the long ball, I mean, Chicks dug Sam Snead driving it You know, as far as he did. I mean, he it was, it was incredibly impressive. I mean, he didn't it as far as uh, Bubba Watson, but it was still amazingly impressive. Hmm. So, so anyone making a powerful swing and launching a ball off on a, on a great trajectory and firing it off into the sky was... I mean, Nicholas was you know, it was incredibly impressive. Hmm. So, so and, in Ron, you know... These are the, 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 the other more first people. generation of players who, who hit long drives that were impressive. Jimmy Thompson was doing it in, you know, Metropolitan 930.
1: Yeah. And, and, and the, there has been a shift, though. I mean, that's always been part of the game, but I think there's been a shift in the last uh, two years or so where more and more fans are not being satisfied by that that they they almost feel like it's cheating it's almost juiced and i think that's an interesting uh change really from when probably mike and john and i have started uh complaining about this to anybody who will listen i i think early on we all probably got the same pushback at uh, oh you know you don't know what you're talking about people love to watch these guys hit it a long way but now you really do sense more and more people watch it and say well there's just something missing i'm not i feel like they're there's there's uh, something gone from the game, a certain challenge.
2: Plus, plus, you look at some of the things that have happened because of this. I mean, the most outrageous example, or well, the most disgusting example of what Mike is Mike brought up there is about the golf courses Is uh, the old course at St Andrews? I mean, that's really what set me off years ago was watching the the tees on what should be the the, the game's monument, ultimate monument. Moving further and further back to the point where now some of them are even not even they're not even on the premises; they're on other golf courses. And that, I mean, I, one of the things that uh, I hacked Mister Dawson off about a few years ago, talking about the Open, was uh, I think the 2005 Championship was the first one to be played on five different <laughs> golf courses at once. I mean that sort of thing is that is. I mean we can laugh, but I mean it's the, no, the old. It we're talking about the old course at St Andrews here. Yeah.
0: He, he must so look forward to your annual <laughs> chat. Uh, I suspect but the date he, is he noted always, in his diary on the first day of the new year. He circles the date that he can expect Huggins.
2: He, he always greets me with the same words. He always he, he shakes my hand when I get inside the door, and he says, "I don't know why I still talk to you." <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, but isn't that an interesting point, Huggins? Because in fact he does still talk to you, is that telling in itself? He doesn't have to if he doesn't want to, does he? And you put him it through is. the grill every year.
2: He is, absolutely, because it, the, we can criticise Peter Dawson as much as we want and, and God knows we have. <laughs> but the, the bottom line is that he's he's on the same side of the fence that we're on. He, he actually does know what's going on and I, I'm not sure how much power he actually wields uh, within the and I think that the power within the RNE is actually the general committee. It's not Peter Dawson, mm-hmm. and I think he's basically the front man for a for an organisation that was caught asleep at the wheel and has been trying to catch up ever since.
0: Yeah. Clates, I get the sense that maybe 10 years ago, as Jeff said, you know, he'd bang on about this stuff to anybody who would listen. But I sense there may be a bit of change in that. I mean, us four 10 years ago might have just sounded like a bunch of old blokes banging on about the old days. And it was a criticism that used to be made of Nicholas, who started talking about the ball going too far quite some time ago. Do you sense a shift? Do you get around to a lot of places? You talk to a lot of club members because you do a lot of work uh, changing and redesigning, you know, traditional golf clubs around the place. Do you get the sense that, that more and more people are sort of coming on board with this notion that perhaps the game's gotten a bit out of hand and changed in a way that is not for the better?
3: Well, perhaps. But I think if you went to the average golf club in Melbourne today, you would find 90% of the people don't know and don't care, as usual. They don't care about the architecture. They don't care about what's happening at the top level. They probably don't even know. And if they play, well, I'm staggered every year I come back, I play with Jeff. Ogilvy and you know I think I hit the ball kind of somewhat reasonable but I don't I hit it fifty yards I'm staggered at how much further he hits the ball than I do you know it's just He's 80 yards sometimes ahead of me so, so I think most people who play you know, don't get that opportunity so they don't actually realise how far these guys hit the ball they, they kind of see it and they watch it on TV but if they went and stood on the first hit upon and whacked their best drop down there and watched him hit it 150 yards past and they would go it's not quite right so I kind of wonder if they actually see there's a problem. they actually don't. It's startling... You know, it's one thing to watch. It's another thing to play and smash a drive to and then watch it go hit at 100 yards past you. And Bubba Watson hit it on the 11th hole in the I mean, he hit it 80 yards past Jeff. He hit a 7-on on that green. But you know, in 1992, when Elkington and Norman knocked it on that green for the first time anyone had ever done it in a tournament, people were staggered. He, you know, he was two of the longest hitters in the game whacking three woods on that green. And twenty years later, a guy stands there with a seven iron on the on the back of the green. That was so. Uh, you, you know, people do, people need to be startled by things like that. And and a part of it for the average person is actually playing with someone who does do it that far, and most of them don't. So and. The reality is certainly in Melbourne. Most members of, of most golf clubs in Melbourne don't particularly care about the game. They play it and they take what they can out of it, but they don't particularly care about its issues. So, which is why it's up to the administrators to, to, to take a take a line and lead it properly, because it's not going to be led by revolution from the bottom. I don't think.
0: No. Is that, that part of this podcast, Shacky, there's a little bit of an education thing, isn't it? And we discussed this in Take One, which sadly is off in the ether in the world of half-finished sentences and lost faxes, <laughs> never, never to be seen again. But there's partly an educational thing, isn't there? An awful lot of people will turn off when you start talking about this stuff. But if you play golf, if you're into golf, it's kind of important, isn't it, to take an interest in this because the game has been and continues to head in a direction which all the evidence suggests is not working. The game is shrinking rather than growing. Less and less people are taking an interest in it, and so you need to have this educational thing. What role does professional golf play in that, though? I've always had the sense that if you Mm cancelled all professional golf this afternoon, there'd still be a a comp on at my home club, Mangrove Mountain, up the road here next Wednesday. Would it really matter?
1: Well, see, I guess I'm in the minority in that. I I I'm an idealist, and I think that it would be great. I I believe in the the uh, synergy, uh, for for lack of a better uh, buzzword between the pro game and, and and the everyday game and I I do love the, the fact that kids are inspired watching pros or or we get excited about playing the game watching elite golf um, and a lot of people don't a lot of the old-time RNA USGA people they love to sort of put down the pro game and why do you obsess about the uh, how far it's going out there or what the ratings are and 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 I, I don't think that's a realistic perspective in the 21st century I think you have to accept that for better or worse the professional game uh has an influence on the everyday game and that's not going to change and that's a, a product of television and the internet and media and what have you and uh you just need to accept that and and move on uh and so that's part of it and then you know another thing too to point out just you know people haven't listened to us talk about this before and, and this is not something uh, an issue where people like uh, Mike are upset because Jeff Ogilvy hits it by him uh, he's upset because uh, it's become disproportionate. There's no longer he's no longer able to relate to Jeff's game. Whereas maybe 15 years ago he could relate to, uh, or a younger player uh, or maybe an older guy could relate to Mike's game when he was at his absolute best. And and that relatability factor I just happen to believe is is uh, a great connection and, and something that should be uh, important. And and we're now seeing this this disconnect where people have just aren't able to relate to golf. And I think it, it really, these are the issues that, that are at the heart of that.
0: Huggy, you play some sort of club golf and with sort of normal, average, everyday golf. It's not uncommon these days, is it, to see a, a 10 or 12 marker who can actually hit the ball 300 yards. It's not unheard of by any stretch, is it? And there's almost a disconnect in the amateur game as well, isn't there?
2: Well, there is. I mean, this, this is not just the pro game. I mean, this is filtered down into, um, you know, the... Pretty good amateur players. I mean, a, a good friend of mine, who uh, uh, Mike Clayton has played golf with, he's a he's actually a greenkeeper at Muirfield, and he's he's a plus one handicapper. And he grew up on the, the the same golf course that I did. And there's a par five on that course where you drive up onto the top of a hill over a marker post, and then it, the fairway dives down. You know, a couple hundred yards further on on the other side. And it used to be that I would hit from that tee a really good drive for me would get to the top of hill, and I'd be hitting from the top of the hill to the to the green. Now, from a tee further back than the one I played from, my friend Dean, who's not as good a player now as I was back then, is hitting a three-wood to stay on top of the hill because a driver goes too far. He now hits the ball 50 to 60 yards further than I did at the same age. I mean, it's, it's nonsensical, and it's it's ruined that hole because the hole was supposed to be played in the way that I played it. Is now played in a completely different way.
0: Mm, indeed. And, of course, that does bring us nicely to what the point of all of this is. And it's about golf courses, as you said, Mike, isn't it? And not just so that we can hang on to some nostalgic thing about this is where they played the Open, you know, 100 years ago, and so you can somehow compare what they're doing today with that. But it's about um, the development of golf course. If you, you built a golf course not long ago in Victoria called Heelsville which is quite short, tell us a bit about that, because we don't see that anymore, do we? I mean, your brief generally, if you're going to do a greenfield site, You start at, you know, 7,000 yards. That's what people want, isn't it? That's what developers demand. That's what people are starting to expect, these monstrously large golf courses.
3: Yeah, um, well, well, Hazel was an existing course. It was 5,000 metres long. we actually shortened it by about 50 yards. But the reality is it's... Well, the problem is that there are are so few good short courses. Well, there are so few courses that length anyway, but, but most short courses, certainly in Australia, aren't very good. All the best courses are sort of... 6,400 metres plus well not plus but you know, 6,600, 800 yards to 7,000 yards so no one's seen a proper well designed 5,500 yard long golf course but if you put 18 strategically sensible holes on a course that long with interesting greens and interesting shots, interesting decisions, it's the sort of course that 90% of members should play golf on, they can actually get some greens and regulation, they can make strategic decisions, of. They've got a putt well around the greens, they've got to hit good bunker shots, but they can actually play They can actually hit greens, and rather than play 480 yard hole and just bumping two woods up the fairway and chipping on from 80 yards away, they can actually think about what they're doing and make the same decision that Jeff Ogilvy is making on a 7,000 yard course. So there's a role for that sort of thing. It takes up less land, it's more fun. Our self imposed brief there was to make a course that Jeff could play with his mum and his dad. They could all play off the same team, and all have fun, and, and all make it work, and, and, it, and it does that. So, you know, there's, there's a role for him, more inventive golf, more nine hole golf, 12 hole golf, par three courses, 5,000 meter courses. You know, not every course has got to be just this, this stupid notion of a, a championship golf course, you know, you know, which is largely the a, a, a slogan for selling real estate anyway.
0: No, it's, a, it's, yeah. a, it's sort of like a cliche, isn't it? Everything's got to, yeah. what, what is a championship golf course, Mike? You've been playing the game professionally for a number of years. What's a championship golf course? I've well, never heard it defined.
3: I'm not sure, but I, I know I've played lots of championships on dreadful golf courses. <laughs> yeah. So, so anything yeah. qualifies as, as, as a championship course. But, um, I mean, a, a, a championship course is Keks needs a championship course, Marion's a championship course. They've got courses that ask relevant questions of the best players in the game. Mm. But. Yeah, you know, as I said, that there are lots of dreadful championship courses, there are great championship courses, but you can't lump them all in the same bucket because they're clearly not. And the sadness of pro golf is that we, they, or we go to so few of them.
0: Yeah. This is one of the things, another one of the things that will come up pretty often. Jeff Shackelford, you wrote an enormous but was practically a book for Golf World magazine. You surveyed a whole bunch of tour players on the US Tour and got their thoughts on the courses they liked the most and the courses they liked the least and some of the reasons why. It was a really interesting study, wasn't it? Tell us some of the things that came out of that and what we can maybe glean from that. Then we'll chat about the companion piece that Jeff Ogilvy wrote, which was really interesting as well.
1: Well, you know, when when Mike was talking and John was talking there, I realized that maybe the the biggest difference um, in this t- technology debate the last few years is it, that we've seen is when again when we started railing about this, we were trying to defend the golf courses, and people would just say, "Well, what's the big deal? You've got to change the course." And now you you what I think where the tide has turned is that people are realizing how ridiculous it is to change uh, these golf courses for. Uh, the ball. And I think that was probably the number one takeaway of this ranking. The players, and I was really kind of shocked by this, they, they really held it against golf courses when they would make changes uh, that were not sympathetic to the original design, that did not blend in, that were just simply adding length for length's sake. And so if you, we have 9,000 words in the, the whole uh, presentation and you get into these comments in the courses and they, they were absolutely brutal when it came to lengthening especially par threes. But in general, just not showing respect for the golf course uh when people were trying to adjust to the ball, and so to me, that's probably one of the most encouraging things in this whole debate now is that we we've seen this change where people no longer have the expectation that the golf course must just adjust to the equipment
0: mm, well particularly in a time when real estate's so expensive and at a premium exactly. there, there are there are worthwhile things you can do with land. Golf courses aren't really one of them, are they? It's, it's a leisure activity, so the less land it takes up, the better. Mike Clayton said earlier, Jeff, that he can't see a push from the bottom from, from amateurs about some of these issues. It's up to the authorities to sort of take it on board. Can you perhaps see the opposite happening with amongst the tour pros? You particularly pointed out in this piece how surprised you were by some of the younger players and how much sort of nous they'd shown in selecting which courses they liked and not. Is it possible that at the professional level you might see the push from the ground up. Jeff Ogilvy said in his companion piece, if they played on better golf courses week in and week out, professional golf, it would be good for the game. It'd be more interesting to play and more interesting to watch. Is it possible that we could see a no. ground up movement?
1: No, I don't think we'll ever see it because they're, they're too closely tied to the manufacturers. Unless the manufacturers, which is starting to happen, say, you know what, bifurcation is the right thing. That's what we need. And you might see players start to do it. But what I've always been fascinated by and might Mike, Mike, be able to speak to this I, I've been fascinated by how more guys aren't like Jeff and that they don't sense um, – they almost don't I, – I would think that some of them almost feel like it's cheating, that that they're at a point now where uh, some of the skill is gone and they have to know it, that there's just – it's just sort of silly the way the game's played at times, um, but you don't really get that. You don't get that sense that the players feel like uh, – uh, they're getting away with something, and, and maybe it's not their job at this point to think about those things. Their, their job is to, to, to go out and try and make a living and hit shots, and I understand that, uh, mm-hmm. and that's why we have governing bodies. But uh, that's always been something that's fascinated me in the last few years. Is Don't you ever get bored? You know, Jeff gets bored with the way the game is played now, and I know there are a few other players like that who just you know, it almost really – you almost have to work hard to stay awake at times uh, the way they hit the ball and the way the equipment allows them to get, get away with that shots.
0: Mike, your thoughts on that? Pretty insular pursuit, isn't it, professional golf? You don't tend to look at the wider world, do you? uh,
3: They're they're in an obsessive race for for the less uh, technological advance. I mean, which shaft is going to give them the the, the next, you know, the extra two yards, and which is going to give them a better launch angle, which ball is going to spin less. So so most guys are consumed by how they can maximise their potential in, in terms of the equipment so they can make as much money as they can, but... You're right, I mean, it is unbelievably boring to play, I play now, I go out and play now with my old wooden three, wouldn't it, it's so much more fun to hit it, there's so much more pleasure in hitting a good shot with it, there's such a stark difference between a good one and a bad one, and it just, it feels better, and it just, and you're right, I mean, Jeff would might try to go and play with wooden heads, and but I know, you know, he's been told by the people who put their name on his bag, that you've got to stop talking about this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. this is... Keep your mouth shut. Then, you know we're, we're in the business of selling equipment to all of who think it's going to give them an advantage.
2: Still, wasn't this a bit heartening? This, this whole survey thing. I've you know I've viewed it from a distance, as uh, Mike has done. I was heartened by two things. I mean, I, I, what surprised me most was that Shackelford knows 9,000 words, but apart from that...
0: <laughs> they weren't, they you weren't know, all different, Huggy. You used, you used some of them <laughs> twice.
2: I did repeat I was, a few, yeah. I was heartened by... I mean, you, you say that what, what Mike has just said is absolutely right, but I was heartened by the fact that they identified the older and generally better courses. I mean, they, 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 they knew that much. I mean, these these are not completely ignorant, these young lads who are hitting the ball 350 yards and making millions of dollars, at least they know, or some of them seem to know, what what was good and what was bad. I mean, that mm-hmm. was at least heartening, I would have thought.
1: Very encouraging, absolutely. And more, like I said, not only that, but recognizing when... Uh, somebody went and was not sympathetic to that design. To me, that really showed a lot, and uh, and and I, I didn't expect that to be
0: honest. Some just to explain that, Shaq. Some people would find it staggering that you know you could be one of the 200 best players in the world and have no idea about golf courses. It's more than possible, isn't it? It's quite common.
1: Well, I think that's why a lot of the people get to that mm. level because they don't recognize. Uh, the intricacies and the things that cause trouble. They don't recognize the hazards. They don't see, um, they just see fairway and green and whole, and uh, their mind is fairly quiet, and um, that's why I think we're always <laughs> taken by the people like um, uh, Ben Crenshaw and Jack Nicholas and Bobby Jones and and even in and somebody like Jeff Ogilvy certainly is in that category where you speak to them and they they take in everything, mm. they see all the trouble, they see all the intricacies of the design, and yet somehow, or, or they also see a horrible golf course.
0: Well, oh, that's right, and, isn't it? And, yeah.
1: and yet somehow they're able to go out there and perform in a way that they they're they're either not um they're they're not bothered by seeing all the the negative. They're able to their mind is able to put that aside or they're able to go out and perform on a course that does nothing uh, to inspire them. And that's why I've always had such admiration for for guys like that uh, who who are kind of on a different level than some of their peers.
0: Huggy, I suppose we keep talking about this. It would seem that uh, uh, the manufacturers have had this notion that if you can keep selling people distance, they will keep buying it. And that seems to have been true for quite some time. Do you get the sense that maybe, not that people don't want to hit the ball far anymore, that just maybe that's not, really cutting the j is this ultimately an unsustainable notion that you can just keep selling product based on the fact that it hits it further. We've seen some innovative ideas and, and concepts put forward, I mean, including John Solheim, he suggested three different golf balls, one that goes further than today's, one that goes today's distance and one that goes shorter. But can you keep selling that dream when it is plainly um not doing anybody any good, particularly at our level, where we just hit it further into the trees, uh, and are people starting well, to maybe look for something else aside from just hitting the ball far? Well, I mean, what about the fun aspect of the game? When do we market that?
2: I'm not really sure that the, the average guy, you know, some, you know, the average guy, 15 let's say a 15 handicapper, really hits the ball any further now than he did 25 years ago because 25 years ago or 20 years ago, he was playing with a pinnacle. That went for miles. Now he's playing with a pro V one, which is essentially a pinnacle that spins a that bit. spins, yeah. So so I'm not sure that he's even noticed any difference. And plus the add in the fact that generally speaking his technique isn't very good and his bad shots are probably, you know, practically identical to the bad shots he was hitting fifteen years ago, I'm not sure that the the average guy is is really benefited at all from any of this. So if, it, if it is, it's negligible. And the, the, the notion that uh, the public, you know, made up of these 15 handicappers is going to be fooled forever by the marketing slogans from companies that are trying to sell them Ever more expensive drivers. I mean, I have to think that the public are going to catch on at some point, and <laughs> we seem to be getting close to that point. Hopefully,
0: yeah. Well, when the fifteen handicap remains the same, despite the four and a half thousand dollars yes. spent on golf clubs in the last two years, you start to wonder well, whether maybe you've been had.
2: <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, you know, this is you know this is a while ago. Now it was fifteen years ago that I left golf. More than fifteen years ago, I left golf. Digest, but I was an instruction editor and. The magazine in charge of the, the section that supposedly is going to make you play golf better. And when I took over the job, the, the average handicap of the average reader was 17.8. And when I left eight years later, it was 17.8. So, um, <laughs> is that
0: a reflection well, on that, you?
2: That, that, that might be a reflection <laughs> on me, but I don't think anything has changed since.
0: It's intriguing, Mike Clayton, isn't it? You, of course, did get to the top level of the game, but you started like everybody else, I suppose, in this pursuit to sort of try and get better. Do you think that's changed in people over the years? I mean, obviously, you would have started as a kid and played against your mates and getting better and improving and obviously get to a point where you can think about turning professional. But do people these days approach the game differently? Is there less interest in that sort of thing and more interest in just hitting the ball a long way, do you reckon?
3: I not really. I think was I mean, always different in terms of what they took out of it. Um, yeah, yeah, I I, mean, I think kids are certainly they, the kids I was watching at the Australian As you know it's you use the word kids I mean when I played the Australian Amateur, there were actually men who had jobs who played it but not anymore but um, I, I think they work out much harder their bodies you know they're they not obsessed but they certainly work out in the gyms so, so they're fitter um, and I think that you know there's much more amongst that generation of, of desire to turn pro we didn't I didn't seriously, seriously think about being a golfer when I was 16 years old but I mean Peter you did and Greg Norman did I guess and Wayne Grady but not many of us did Mm. I think now, I think every
0: kid out there wants to be a golf pro. Well, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is so much bigger, isn't it, Claude? So this this is driving a lot of people to professional golf who've come to the game not necessarily for the same reasons that most of us probably did, where you found it and you enjoyed the challenge of it and all those other things. For a lot of people, I I suspect, in the last couple of decades, a little bit like tennis, it's been, well, if you get good at it, you can make a fortune. So you don't play the game for the same reasons that a lot of people do.
3: And I think switching topics a bit to, to the tennis, I think our analogy of, or take on tennis in the book, The Future of Golf, was that here was a game that was supposed to be more fun and easier to play when the big-headed rackets came in, and a numbers of people playing tennis in America, in, in America dropped staggeringly in a time that corresponded with big rackets and the game being easier. And, and the same thing, I mean, there are other reasons for it too, but the same thing's happening in golf. The game's never been easier, the ball's never gone further it's never you know the clubs are so much easier to use and yet fewer and fewer people are playing and the same thing happened in tennis 20 years ago so jeff do you have a i mean what what what's your take on that because i know you made that point strongly in the book
1: well i just think the game became well the pro game became less interesting to watch so that inspires fewer people and then the actual recreational game uh powered and the the rackets worked and so power did come into it and and uh, yeah, how many people really? It's it's fleeting. It's fun for a minute or two, but then you know the real fun of having a good doubles match is some good fun rallies and and a and a, <laughs> a serve uh, a power serve game doesn't really uh, necessarily lend itself to that. And so I think the same thing happens in golf. It's 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 a thrill to get that um, that great drive. But how many times after a round do you talk about the great drive, the length of the drive you had? You talk about the the birdies. You talk about the uh, the great shot that gave you a tap in or the hole in one, or uh, you, you know, it, it's just uh, it. Distance is relative. It's it's not very interesting. It's it's it it's a brush when you do it, but it's a very uh, it's a short burst. And and the stuff that really sticks with us is a little bit more substantial than that.
0: Yeah, indeed, of course, golf faces many as a moment. I don't think any of us would say that the ball going too far is what's sort of killing the game, but certainly cost and time is slow play and the cost of the game, and they're all sort of linked in together. We won't pull apart those threads today, but they'll be among the topics that we will discuss in the future. I think we might call it quits for there for the day, fellas, because otherwise this will get away from us, and it'll be tomorrow before we finish. So we'll wrap it up this first episode of State of the Game, and I'll do so by thanking each and every one of you for taking part, starting with you, Jeff Shackelford. Good to have you along.
1: All right, thank you, and thank you for recording it today, Rod. Yeah, that was
0: the only job I had, and I managed to finally do it.
1: John... No, no, no. you did, You, did. As always, you did a
2: super job.
0: John Huggan. we thank you for taking the time to, given that it's late in the evening where you are.
2: Nice to be with you.
0: Yeah, and Mike Clayton, thank you for getting up early to take part as well. It was great to chat okay. to you and get your thoughts today. Thanks, Rod and that wraps up episode one of State of the Game took us two goes to get there but we did finally get something to put out on the World Wide Web I hope you enjoyed it and I hope it gave you an insight into the sorts of content you'll be able to hear on the podcast as we produce it each and every fortnight you'll be able to find each episode of the of the podcast at Jeff Shackelford.com there'll also be an iTunes feed that you can subscribe to that does take a couple of days to set up so probably not there as yet but it won't be too long you'll be able to to press that link and subscribe to the podcast, have it delivered direct to you without having to do anything every couple of weeks. Now we will also be talking fairly extensively on the podcast as we go along about golf course architecture. I know it's a bit of a subculture of the game, but it is an area that there's plenty of people are interested in and we're hoping to get some really good guests to come along and chat about just what it is that makes a good golf course and a good golf hole. Special thank you to Lloyd Cole, who supplied the opening theme for the show. It's a song called Writer's Retreat of his upcoming album. You can have a look and find out more about that at lloydcole.com. There's a link to that website also on Jeff's site. And Lloyd is a golf nut and a real student of golf course architecture. So we might even get him on the show at some point. That's all for us for this week. We look forward to your company again next time on State of the Game. Oh, 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 oh,